Well, good morning, everybody. Um, this morning, or last night, you know, I was preparing for this and getting ready to, to preach and going over my notes, and I thought, you know, I really need to make sure that I get a good night's rest. And uh, what I forgot about is I have a 16-month-old daughter, and she happens to be getting some molars right now. So uh, I was up until about 2.30 last night uh, helping her through that. And then this morning I said, oh, Okay, last night was rough, but it's all right. I still got a couple hours before I got to go, so I'm going to go get some coffee. So I went to a local establishment to get some coffee, and just uh, ha- they happened to slip and accidentally put some kind of bag or something that I don't know the origins of in there that uh, came into my mouth and down my lip. And So if you see me shivering today, it's because I'm remembering that experience a couple minutes ago, but I did not get any coffee, so we're going to rely on the Lord this morning for sure. So... Um, We are in John chapter 1 still. Last week, uh, we went up until verses 19. Today, we're going to continue with verses 19 through 34. So there's two things we're going to do today. First is we're going to try to understand what is being talked about, understanding the scripture. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to say, how does that scripture, now that we know what it means, how does that apply to our lives? What can we take away from it? So let's start with John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say for yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been questioned, who had been sent, questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have been sent, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So let's go back to the beginning. Now we're going to break this down and try to understand what is being said here because it can be kind of confusing. There's a lot of uh, theology that is derived from this book, from John. So first off, last week we talked about John was clearly sent from God. In verse 6 of John John 1, it clearly says he was sent for God, but he is not the light, but it's simply a witness to the light. So it's saying that John is clearly not the Messiah, But God is working through him. And this is a very important point. When God starts to work through you, work through you as a church, as a person, people will ask, who are you? What is happening? 
John responded them with a scripture, okay? And this is important because this happens a lot in the New Testament. Jesus referenced scriptures a lot when he was teaching. And it's important to go back and to understand when the Jewish leaders were there, what did that mean to them when he quoted Isaiah? We have to remember that these Jewish leaders, most of them had the entire Torah memorized, okay? That was, a, that was part of being a leader. So if you have the entire Torah memorized and I mention a verse to you, you're going to know the entire story behind it. It's similar to if today, if I were to come up here and say the words, I have a dream, you're immediately taken back to the message of Martin Luther King, okay, the civil rights and all of those things. You're immediately in a place where you understand that's probably where I'm going with this. Okay, so let's go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is what he quotes. He said, a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah is a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, okay? Israel as a whole has multiple factions, and Judah was one of them that kind of stayed uh, following God the most out of them. And so at this point, Isaiah is a prophet for the kingdom of Judah. And there's a king there that had just made some bad choices, and he had basically doomed the, Israel, uh, the Israelites, and they knew that exile was coming. The Babylonians were going to come, and they're going to take them captive, um, and they knew that was coming. And so Isaiah is actually writing a comforting prophecy from God to the Israelites. So in this line the Jewish leaders would have immediately went to the other parts of Isaiah and understood too. For example, in Isaiah 64.10, which I don't have this on the slide, but it says, your sacred cities will become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem is a desolation. And then in 41 uh, verses 17 through 18, he says, the poor and the needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. They're immediately going to a point where they know that they are lost, that they uh, don't have a hope, but God is saying, I will provide the hope. Okay, a lot of times prophecies in the Old Testament actually have a dual purpose. The first is the physical fulfillment of the prophecy. Babylon did come and exile and uh, conquer the kingdom of Judah. But there's also a spiritual aspect to these prophecies saying, your cities are in desolation, but so are your hearts. You are not following the Lord any longer. But the Lord will provide and save for you. He will give you that drink in the desert. So the Jewish leaders would have immediately went to this. And so John's answer tells them, hey, this prophecy is not fully fulfilled yet. It's not done. And I'm the one in the wilderness saying, make straight the ways for the Lord. He's coming. The Savior is coming. So that's how he answers it. And the rest of it we're going to go through again as well. So the first point, the first thing we can take away is that John knows exactly who he is and he can explain it to those who are questioning him. Let's read verses 24 through 28. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose 
sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. John understands that while he does have a mission from God and he, God is moving and there's, and there's repentance happening, he's baptizing people, showing the repentance that he's bringing, saying, prepare yourselves. He understands, listen, God is moving through me. I am not God. I know exactly who I am, and there's one coming before me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, this is important because sandals are very symbolic in this, in this time. A teacher and a student had a very different relationship at this time. A student was like a slave to a teacher. And I know there's a lot of teachers here that wish that was still the case, um, but fortunately, that's not the case. But As a student, you were a slave to the teacher. You had to do anything the teacher asked or needed or waited on them. But the one thing you did not do as a student, because even a student was not beneath you this much, is you didn't touch their feet. You didn't take their sandals off. You didn't do any of that. So when John says, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet, he's saying, I'm not even considered human compared to him. I'm not worthy of anything. This is a major step down. John knows who he is, and we also have to know who we are, okay? Because people, like we already established, when God is moving, when God is working, will ask us, who are you? We have to know who we are in relationship with God. What else does the Bible say about who we are in the relationship with God? The Bible makes it crystal clear that while John was serving his purpose— in preparing the way for the Lord, we also have a purpose ourselves. Our purpose is to share the gospel, the Great Commission. And the reason we're sharing that gospel is because we are considered children of God after you have accepted Christ. So I'm talking to professing believers now. You are a child of God. And where does that language come from? Why would we say that? Let's look in Galatians. The Apostle Paul was writing, In uh, chapter 4, verse 7, he said, But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. What does this tell us? This says that when Jesus died and rose again three days later, paying for our sins, the spirit that he sends on us when we accept that is us being adopted into the sonship of God, and we are actually taking Jesus' place as an heir of God. So we are children of God. That is who we are down to our core once you have accepted Christ. He gave his sonship over to us. John says that he's baptizing with water. He's showing that his actions are a representation. They're a physical uh, show of what's happening. The same way that we baptize here, myself and Paul and whoever's baptizing isn't saving the person. It's a representation of the repentance and the salvation that has happened in their heart. And so you need to have the power of God in order to actually save, which we don't have. And John is making very clear, I'm not... Elijah, who's someone who's going to return one day. I am not uh, the Christ. I'm not Messiah, and I'm not the prophet. Now, the prophet is somebody uh, that Moses said was going to come, which thanks to Acts 3.22, we actually know was Jesus fulfilling the role as the prophet coming back. 
Um, and so, but he's saying he's not the Christ there. Okay, so let's move on to verses 29 through 34, the kind of the last section here. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to us or to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So we know who we are now. John knew who he was. What's the next thing we can take away? The second thing is that our testimony, John's testimony tells who Jesus is and ours should do the same. John has a a deep theological understanding of who Jesus is when he walks up because of this one line that sounds a little bit like a word salad that we're going to break down for a second. So he says, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. There's three things in here that's very important. One is that John and the Jewish leaders were still waiting for the Messiah at this point. We live in a time where Jesus has come and the Messiah is there, but they are waiting there for someone to come and rescue them out of uh, oppression. This is a very oppressed people. So John understands that he's preparing the way for the Messiah, for the one who comes after me. John also understands this person is greater than he, as he said he can't even uh, untie his sandals, because this person has surpassed me. This person is greater than me. What I'm doing and working in God's field is nothing compared to what this man will do. And the third thing is, is that John makes a very important statement that because he was before me is showing that Jesus is actually eternal. Jesus is God because if you are before and after in all time, you're eternal, just like Jesus is. As we learned last week, Jesus is the word that was part of creation, and he became flesh. So he finishes this with I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, I'm not talking about LeBron James type chosen, okay? I'm talking about, again, he's already established that he's talking about what Isaiah was prophesying. So let's go back to Isaiah and see what would they have understood when he said the chosen one. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So he says here, I will put my spirit upon him. And in some versions of this, it says, and will remain on him, just like John said. So we understand that he is saying, this is the man who's going to bring justice to our hearts, because he's talking about the spiritual side of the prophecy in Isaiah. This is the man who is going to save us. Okay. What else? What else can we take away from this passage? The third thing 
is God gave us our story and our testimony to be shared. Okay, there's some theological points in this that of why we're to share our testimony. John knew who he was. He knew his purpose. Jesus makes our purpose clear, and we are to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us. But let's look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 to see why. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may, can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So here's the thing. As Christians, we know that we've gone through some crap. I know so many people in this church who have been abused, who have been hurt, who have been, uh, had just opportunities taken from them. And God says that, listen, those troubles that was there because I can save you from it, and then you can go and help someone else with the same comfort that you received. That comfort is meant for more than just you and more than just me. So as we go about our lives, we have to think, when we're telling our story, do we hide part of it? Do we take parts and kind of put them in the back pocket for after you've known me for 18 years, maybe I'll let you know this part, right? Why God owns all of our story because God has paid for all of our story. Jesus didn't come down to just save the chase who is sitting here and preaching and being a good Christian. No, Jesus came to save the chase who is a sinner, right? Jesus came to save chase who... Uh, was drunk and passed out in his apartment when he was in college, who, who has struggled with temptation and lust. He's here to save you in your worst moments. That is the version of you that Jesus died for, not the version of you that puts the face on. So he paid for your whole story. Now for the fourth point. God paid for our whole story because, why did he do that? because it gives him glory. Don't rob him of his glory. Where does that come from? Let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is Paul writing. The reason this is important, the reason that this is uh, a big statement coming from Paul, we talk about him all the time, and he's an apostle, he's written what feels like half of our Bible uh, he's a huge uh, personality in Christian faith. But you have to understand that Paul's story is one who he was actively persecuting the church. Okay, He was actively, uh, had his hands in murders of Christians. He was hunting them down, trying to exterminate them because he wanted to be a good Jew. He wanted to become powerful, and he wanted all these things. And so the way to do that in that church was to hunt down and kill or get rid of, imprison Christians. You and I, when Paul was Saul, would have been an enemy. So he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What he's saying is that, listen, God saved me and went to the deepest, darkest parts of my being and my soul, and he paid for that because he gets the most glory in that and because those parts are what changes others' lives. When people see me in the deepest, darkest recesses changed and there's light where there was darkness, that leads to more salvations because people can see the glory of God and what he has done for you. His grace, let's go to the final point here. His grace has already defeated what we are blank to share. Afraid, ashamed, embarrassed, everything that we have done that can fill in that blank has been paid for and has been defeated. Our past has no power on us anymore. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, we're going to wrap up. I challenge you to be like John and know your purpose, to know who you are in Christ, to know that you need to lead people to Christ. Your testimony must point to Jesus. And I challenge you to give it all to him. To not hide behind your insecurities or your fears that we all have. But those have been defeated and paid for by the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's a complete removal of everything in us that would kill us. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask uh, Allie if you'll stand over there. And uh, let's see who else is there. Paul's doing the thing. So, uh, Rodney, if you can, if you wouldn't mind praying with some people back there, and Dave's in the back, um, come and pray with somebody if this is something that you've struggled with because it's something we all have. But in order to reach people for the gospel, we have to fully embrace what Jesus did for us. We have to fully embrace the power and the glory that is Jesus's.